You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 89th Psalm. The 89th Psalm. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant... I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously receive, praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your right hand, your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to Yahweh, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall establish with him, be, be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in his name... And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his right hand on the sea, his hand on the sea, and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. 
All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease, and have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Yahweh. With which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father. Forgive us, your covenant people, whenever we fail to think of ourselves, to conduct ourselves, to live, to sing and lament in respect and orientation towards your King. Our King. And so align our hearts now with those of the psalmist. And may our joys be your covenant. Your, with David, your your promises concerning your King. And may our sorrows too be rooted not around ourselves. But when we see your king maligned and not given his due praise and glory. And may we express laments as longings for your kingdom come. And his manifest return and all things made right. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In our examination of the Davidic covenant, we began at the beginning, at its inception, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the inception of the Davidic covenant, whenever everything looked hopeful and bright. And now, we're looking at the seeming end of the Davidic covenant, when all seems dismal. And yet, the psalmist opens here with praise, lavish praise. I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Well, sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. Forever is going to be, you'll see, a key word throughout this psalm. It occurs eight times. But this first usage is distinct from the majority. What is it that is forever here? It's not the steadfast love and faithfulness of of Yahweh as it, as it most often is throughout the psalm. What is forever here? It's the singing of the psalmist. I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. Forever I will sing. I will sing forever of the steadfast love of Yahweh. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Why does the psalmist glory that he will sing Forever? For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. He sings forever of Yahweh's steadfast love because Yahweh's steadfast love is built up forever. His singing is the effect. And it will be a forever effect because the cause of it is a forever cause. Yahweh's steadfast love is forever and therefore He sings forever. Or again, in the heavens, 
Yahweh establishes his faithfulness, and thus he will with his mouth make known Yahweh's faithfulness to all generations because that faithfulness is built up to the heavens. It endures. Now you have the major motifs of this psalm in those first verses laid out before you, to which we return again and again. Forever, steadfast love, and that's that rich word, uh, hesed, that covenant word, God's covenant faithfulness. So forever, steadfast love, faithfulness. And from what Ethan has said in verse 2, we turn to what Yahweh says in verse 3. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. So the steadfast love of which the psalmist is singing here is the covenant love with David. And the faithfulness that he's going to tell all generations about is the faithfulness towards David and this covenant. The throne that is built up for all generations, verse 4, is the faithfulness of God of which Ethan will tell all generations. The psalmist isn't David. He's not a son of David. He's not a king. He's not a prince. But his singing, his forever singing and praise are all in reference to God's covenant with his king. In our occasional jaunts through the Psalter, we've seen this thing again and again. The best way to sing the Psalms is not to immediately take them up as personal praise Psalms. As, they're, as if they're just plug and play. Anyone can take them up and, and they immediately draw, uh, jive with your operating software, whatever that may be. No. Always, and sometimes in a, in a kind of special manner, you have to understand that you have to take these up as the, the psalms of the kingdom. The king must always be in your mind. And quite often, it's he we must understand that is singing. Now, in this case, the king is being sung of. So the king must be foremost in our hearts and our minds as we take up a psalm like this. And if your praise fluctuates, if it feels limited, if it feels measured, if it feels temporal and time-bound, if it's up and down, if it ebbs and flows, perhaps it's because you're orienting your praise around yourself instead of God's King and His covenant. It isn't that the psalmist here in any way praises God in some kind of detached and disinterested manner. It's that he understands his position before God. He understands all of God's promises and dealings come as uh, through and mediated by the king that he's established over his people. His praise is situated in the big story that God is telling and not his little story. In other words, your praise should be oriented in light of the epic tale that God has put forth rather than the little stories you tell like those on Facebook. Your praise, you should praise God. Let me put it this way. You should praise God because of your promotion. But never should that be central and the main emphasis of your praise. Praise God because of your promotion. But foremost, your praise should be because of the exaltation of His King. Praise God for every good gift that He... It comes from His hands. He's due thanksgiving and praise and honor. But don't let any of those small gifts eclipse the gift 
of Christ, of His King, over His people. So you've been giving something so grand. Not only can you sing of this forever, you can call on the heavens to join and praise with you. Verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of your holy ones. It goes on to speak of the heavenly beings, the, the council of the holy ones. All these refer to the heavenly host, the angelic host. And the wonders for which they are to praise Yahweh, let the heavens praise your wonders. The wonders for which they are to praise Yahweh are His covenant faithfulness towards His people. Your faithfulness in the assembly. And now it's not speaking of His faithfulness in the assembly of the angels, your faithfulness in the, his, his faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. So you have the assembly of the holy ones, but the faithfulness, again, that's being spoken of here and throughout the psalm is God's faithfulness to his covenant people centered on the king he's given them. You'll see why I say that. That'll develop shortly. But for now... What God is doing in His covenant with David is reason for the angelic host to praise and marvel at God. Peter says that the angels are on tiptoe, waiting, they were on tiptoe, waiting for God's plan of redemption to unfold. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Paul gives some insight into what Peter is speaking of there whenever he speaks about the revelation of the mystery of the gospel, not only in respect to our knowledge of this mystery as it's unfolded, but those of the powers and principalities, the heavenly host. Ephesians 3, 8-11, To me, though I'm the very least of the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's plan was known to Himself And as it's being unfolded, the angels look into this with marvel and awe. Why do they take such interest? Well, there are a myriad of reasons, but one of them is that verse 2, this steadfast love and this faithfulness of God to His King over His people is established in the heavens. It has cosmic, it has heavenly implications, as we'll soon see. His faithfulness involves mighty wonders, so that He's exalted above all, all the other heavenly host. Who is like Him? Verses 6 through 8. Who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around Him, of all the heavenly host, the angelic host, whenever man encounters them, terrify man, bring him to his knees. And among all of them, who is like Yahweh? As Isaiah said, the holy ones, the burning ones, the seraphim before Him cover their face and they cover their feet and they cry out, holy, 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 which is to say, Other, 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 separate, separate, separate. There is none like unto Him. And then, some of the most jolting and I think shocking imagery in all of Scripture is used 
to capture the might and wonder of God and His covenant faithfulness. In verses 8 through 11, O Yahweh of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, and the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in them, you have founded them. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, I think it's best to take an inventory of the main elements that are laid before us. We have the sea, the earth, the heavens. So we have creation as a noun. But then we have creation as a verb, as an act, something God has done. You have founded them. So we've got this creation kind of imagery. You've got the might of God and the defeat of His enemies being caught up with this creation imagery. And then the most peculiar element is Rahab. What or who is Rahab? In Isaiah 51, 9 through 10, we find very similar language. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. So you got this, the mighty arm of Yahweh, his, his arm of deliverance here. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Job 26, 11 through 13, similar imagery. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he has stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. We have that creature that we often think of only in reference probably to the book of Job. That mysterious creature Leviathan that we argue whether or not some scholars I think will foolishly say, Oh, it was a, it was a crocodile. Well, it's put in the same category as Rahab. This, this language hardly fits crocodile. Psalm 74. You delivered the sea by your might. You broke up the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. You see the creation imagery again brought into all of this. Now, putting all these things together, Rahab appears as this sea monster or sea dragon, the sea serpent, whom Yahweh defeats, bringing order to chaos. And this sounds like those Mesopotamian creation myths, such as where you have Marduk, defeating this primordial sea goddess Tiamat, and from her rent body making heaven and earth. And so some will accuse the Bible here of appropriating these pagan myths. But earlier in Isaiah you read this. Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. Do you see how God there is mocking Egypt, calling her by the name of a pagan goddess that was rent asunder. And in the Psalter itself, you back up a, a couple of Psalms. Psalm 87.4, again, Rahab is clearly a nation there. What are we to make of all this? Well, you back up, you take in the big story. And you remember that whenever God delivered His people in covenant faithfulness, is with this kind of language of signs and wonders, with His mighty arm, with His right hand, He's delivering them. And He told them He would do so, not only humiliating Egypt, but Exodus 12, 12, He would do so judging, exposing, humiliating their gods. You begin to study those ten wonders of judgment that fell on Egypt, and you realize how each of them mock Egypt and her gods. 
Egypt is likened to this sea monster of chaos. And by defeating her, God brings about a kind of new creation as He's bringing His people into this Edenic-like land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen again to Isaiah 59. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old. Now let's, let's then hear about these days of old. The generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? You see the linking of this imagery to the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. And here, all of this is being reflected on, not in reference to Moses, but in reference to God's covenant with David. And that we're on the right trail of thinking of this cosmic mythical metaphor being used to speak of God's creation of His people and bringing them into the land of promise becomes really clear in the next verses, 12 through 18. You have this creation imagery and then it says, the north and the south you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, you created them. These are two mountains in Israel, north and south, of one, respectively to one another. And it goes on to speak of God's mighty arm, strong as your right hand, and it, it, it then speaks of righteousness and justice of the foundation of your throne. And with this kind of Egypt imagery in your mind, think of the giving of the Ten Commandments and steadfast love and faithfulness going before Him as His people are unfaithful to the covenant again and again, but God is faithful And so blessed are the people who know the festal shout. All the festivals, the feasts that God lays out in His law are in regard to His deliverance, His mighty acts and wonders, and what He's done in the Exodus. Who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. And then... The tie-in to the Davidic covenant becomes clear. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. What is their horn? Their might? Their strength? Their military prowess? What is it? Well, it's the same thing as their shield. Their shield belongs to Yahweh. What is their shield? What is this horn? Our king. Their shield belongs to Yahweh. Their king belongs to Yahweh. To Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. All of this has been set up to reflect on God's covenant with David. That's the central portion of the psalm. That's the focus, verses 19 through 37. All of this reflecting on on Yahweh and His covenant faithfulness to His people and His might and His wonders, using this cosmic mythical metaphor to portray them. All of this is set up For God's covenant with David, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from this people. Verses 19 through 34, 24, you see David as one who is chosen, exalted, anointed, established, strengthened by the one who crushed Rahab and delivered his people. And so it is that this king then you can understand why no enemy would outwit him, the wicked not humble him, why his foes would be crushed before him, and God would strike down those who hate him. Here is anticipated, can you see? The serpent-crushing seed of the woman who will bring order to the chaotic sea disturbed by the serpent. I don't think one can but think, as you read verse 25, I will set his right hand on the sea, his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. Looking back to verse 9, it's Yahweh who rules the raging of the sea. Whenever you're reading this, I don't know if you're 
you're fluent in Bible, if you're, if you're marinating in the Bible, how one cannot but think of Christ after he has calmed the storm on Galilee. Then coming to the other side and encountering the gathering demoniacs and driving out those demons into a herd of swine who then drown themselves, throw themselves off a cliff and drown in the sea. Behold the Lord's anointed whose right hand is on the seas and the serpent underneath his pierced foot. Offspring of David will cry out to God as Father, and Yahweh will make him firstborn. I will set his right hand on the sea, his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He's the eternally begotten of the Father. And this is why he says, my Father, and then your Father. And the only time he says, our Father, is whenever he's putting words in our mouths, teaching us how to pray. Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven. But all the rest of the time, it's my Father and your Father. Because there is a very clear distinction between how God is his Father And how he's our father. But here, this is a special language of fatherhood. That has the idea of preeminence and inheritance. And so you see it in Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. This is the kind of language that helps you make sense of Colossians 1. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, that in everything, he might be preeminent. It's the idea of preeminence and inheritance. I will establish... My steadfast love I will keep with him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, his throne as the days of the heavens. This firstborn is the highest of the kings of the earth. He has an eternal throne. See, because the very might of God lies behind this covenant, the might of God that defeats Rahab, that brings about his people out of that destruction. Because that kind of covenant faithfulness is behind this king. His rule is established. It's forever. Though God may discipline his sons, verses 30 through 32, his offspring, literally his seed, and recall that promise, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, I will establish his seed, singular, forever. But then it goes into plural concerning this discipline. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes. So though there is this discipline, there is a foreverness. His seed will be established forever. Verses 33 through 37. I will not remove my steadfast love. Or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. Spurgeon says eternal shalls and wills make glorious havoc among the ifs and buts. God has sworn he does not lie. This covenant is forever Because the forever might of God and His promise lie behind it. But now. But now you've cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed, your king. But now. It seems as if forever was only a matter of centuries. 
400 years is impressive for a single dynasty. But it's hardly forever. All generations, but 20 generations, barely qualifies at making a dent in all generations, as impressive as it is. The city of David lies in ruins, verse 40. Their king is mocked, ridiculed, defeated, humiliated, verses 41 through 45. And so now the earlier praise of Yahweh gives way to lament. Verse 46, how long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? As the king's exaltation was cause for praise... Now, the king's demise is cause for lament. Saints, learn something here of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Learn what it means to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For you to frame your prayers, to frame your praise, to frame your cries, to frame them in reference to God's covenant and his king. Again, is the thing that, that the fuel that's burning behind your prayers, is the fuel your promotion or is it the king's exaltation? Is, is the thing that can dampen that fuel and, and cause you to cry out, your Suffering, or is it the seeming blasphemy and seeming humiliation of God's King? And yet, even so, this psalm ends with doxology. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. This psalm does conclude the third book of the Psalms. Psalms is divided up into five books. So you look at Psalm 90, it begins book four. And all the Psalms that end each book end with doxology. There's clearly some final editorial work over which I believe it's clear God inspired to arrange the Psalter as we have it before us. But some scholars will suggest, well, all the books end with doxology. This one's just haphazardly tacked on. Is it really that surprising that a psalm that begins, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever, would end with blessed be Yahweh forever? You see, the lament is an expression of faith in the very same promises that gave rise to praise. It's faith looking at the promise that praises, and it's faith looking at the promise that laments. They're both an expression of faith. They're looking at different lens, not, not a false lens, but just the reality that's laid in front of them. When faith looks through the lens of God's temporary chastening of His people, when it looks through the lens of this world's hatred of God's King, or the lens of the seeming end and absence of God's promises, faith doesn't doubt. Faith laments. Now, is there, is there doubt mixed in? There is doubt mixed as much in your lament as there is doubt mixed in your praise. But lament and praise both are expressions of faith. And we will express both imperfectly, but they're both expressions of faith. Lament is faith Crying out in the darkness in hope of light. 
Praise is faith crying, uh, rejoicing in the light. Lament is faith crying out in the darkness in hope of light. Our circumstances may be cause for us to lament, cry out concerning God's covenant faithfulness. But what that means is that lament is a way for us to sing forever of God's steadfast love even in the valley of the shadow of, the de- of death. How, how can I sing forever as, as I'm reading this? You have this longing. I want to sing forever of a steadfast love and faithfulness. How can I do that through the midst of this trial? Lament is the answer. Sing forever, even in the valley, crying out. Here is Ethan. He's composing the psalm, the psalm in which he resolves and rejoices that he will sing forever. And it's a psalm for the people of God. And it centers on God's King. So that both his praise and his lament, both his joy and his sorrow, centering on God's King then, are covenantal. They're in respect to God's covenant. Saints, you are not strangers to the covenants of promise. They're yours in Christ. So, may too, our joys and our sorrows, our praise and our lament be covenantal. May they be caught up in God's epic tale, this covenant story that we've seen He's telling, this thing that angels have longed to look into. So instead of your little bitty sphere of events and circumstances and letting your joys and sorrows ebb and flow on that, yes, your life will have this ebb and flow, but let it be tied to God's covenant dealings. Let it be tied to your King. Don't think of yourself as just this private citizen and all of God's dealings had to do with you. He's a king. And you're part of his kingdom. And he will reign forever. Forever. And so get out of your little temporal bubble. And let your praise and your laments center around God's dealing with his king. Let me bring it home to you in this way. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with it. It's full of promise and thus comfort. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Now when reading or hearing that passage, I am sure that most of you are thinking of Christ. But what I... I pray becomes more clear to you is that you think of Christ as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the king, that you begin to think of those words covenantally. See, all that Yahweh holds out there through his prophet Isaiah is covenantal. The next verse, the next words of God that come forth, In that passage, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make you with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Here you are, needy sinner. And God is saying, here is the water of life. That if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. Here is the feast of Christ laid before you. Come, eat, drink. And if you, if you do so, if you come to Christ, 
I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And this is the everlasting covenant I will make with you. The covenant I make with you is the steadfast and sure love of David. There is a forever people because there is a forever king. There is a covenant with man because there is a covenant with the God-man as the son of David who will forever rule over the people of God. When the kingdom is falling, whenever kings have failed, you see by Isaiah, he's directing his people's attention. It's exactly where Ethan is going with the psalm. He's directing their attention Not to something just personal, direct with him. He's directing their attention to his promise to his king. Don't take up the Psalms, oh, woe is me. And you're looking for some kind of direct little thing that has to do directly with you. In the midst of that trial, in the midst whenever it seems like everything God has said is failing, look to what he said concerning his king. And his forever rule and reign. wonder, the real wonder of the psalm, I believe, is this. On Good Friday, the disciples could have sang this lament. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. If ever there was a moment that the church of God could have taken up this lament, it was then. And the beautiful wonder and irony of it all is that never ever in the history of God's covenant redemption plan with man, never has God's steadfast love and faithfulness been more manifest than in that very moment. At the cross, this psalm begins to play backwards. So instead of moving from praise to lament, it moves from lament to praise. In Acts 13, Paul says that Isaiah, when he wrote those words concerning the steadfast and sure love of God for David, that he was speaking of the resurrection. Acts 13, 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The holy and sure blessings of David that Isaiah spoke of as being given to God's people, Paul says were demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. Your king has risen from the grave. Blessed be Yahweh forever and ever. The sure and holy blessings of David are ours because Christ is our King. Saints, let us sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With our mouth, let us make known His faithfulness to all generations. God the Father has said of His Son, the Son of David, our King, that he will be his rule will be established forever his throne for all generations this is the steadfast love of god for his king for our king who was forsaken for our sins resurrected as our life 
by his death and resurrection, he has begun to steal the chaos of the curse, bringing about a new creation, the church. His right hand is on the seas, and the serpent lies writhing underneath his pierced foot. Sinner, come. If you are thirsty, stop going to wells that cannot satisfy. Come, drink from Christ. If there is sorrow for your sin and the effects of the curse upon this world, look to God's King. His promises concerning His King. Incline your ear. Come to Christ. Hear that your soul may live. And He will make with you an everlasting covenant. The steadfast, sure love of David. His forever King. Let's pray. Holy Father. For we your people we plead. Bind our hearts to your King. Make our hearts as the psalmist here. May we take up a forever song in reference to Him. With a mixture of praise and lament in this life, certain. That one day, light will swallow up all the darkness. The chaos will be no more. The waters forever stilled. Because it has been finished in Christ already. The victory won. So tie our hearts, Lord, we plead to your King. Both our joys and our sorrows. Lift us up out of ourselves. Cause us to see ourselves as children of the kingdom. And Father, we plead for those who are thirsty. For those who are hungry. For those who are working and laboring and spending and finding only emptiness and vanity. No satisfaction. Father, we plead they would hear your invitation to come and that they would drink of Christ and they would know your everlasting covenant love, the steadfast, sure love of David, that they would know it in Christ your King today. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.